I still don't know what to think about playing songs off against one another, but I guess we're just going to have to see where it goes. And I'll be royally upset, Ashley, if my song doesn't win, okay, just so you know. <laughs> you know, um, I think you know what I mean by this statement. Conversations can be life-giving. You know, if you've ever sat with some friends, the weather's perfect, you're sitting outside, uh, you just feel comfortable, there's no bugs bothering you, and then somebody asks a question that spawns like an hour, an hour and a half of conversation, like, like not just your typical superficial weather conversation, but how you think, how you feel, how you're, what fears are coming, and you talk around the table for for what seems like five minutes, and you go, wow, that was an hour and a half. It was, it was time-defined. Or maybe you're at work, and you're struggling with the problem. You've been struggling with the problem as a team for a while, and then you're in a conference room with a, your team, and then somebody makes a suggestion, and it just seems like everything clicks, and then you and your team go off on, on all these ideas, and you're rolling around with them. You're t telling one another, going back and forth off one another, and the problem that was boxing you in for weeks, not even, maybe months, all of a sudden just unfolds because you've had this deep interaction that, that's life-giving and, and exciting and, and launches you into something new. Or you're driving home from Hamilton after your son has been in a basketball tournament. And it's just the two of you and there's no radio on and there's no phones being looked at. There's no iPad playing a mo movie. It's just the two of you. And your son begins to tell you what he really thinks about school and about being one of three boys and about being a pastor's kid. And, and what was one hour seems like five minutes. And your soul is full, life-giving from that interaction where you and your son were honest and just sharing what is true at that deeper level. We all love those types of conversations. And granted, they don't happen every day, not with our kids and not with people at work and not even with our spouses, but when we get to have them, they are time-defying. It just time seems to go by without us realizing, and they're life-giving. And so I'm asking the question, why don't we have those kinds of interactions with God? I mean, where time just seems to fly by. And when we're done, we, we have this sense of life being imbued to us and in us. When we need to talk to God about somebody we love who has died or is dying. When we need to talk to God about one of our children who we are really concerned about and the decisions they're making or the issues they're facing at school. When we need to pour out our hearts to God about being single and trying to honor him with purity and understand what he has for us and trust him with that.
And we need to pour out to God the struggles that we are having in our marriage, and we are wondering how we're going to get through this. Or the fears we have about saying the truth at our next meeting at work. Where those kinds of conversations, albeit we don't have them all the time, every day with God, I get it, uh, but, but why aren't they more frequent in our lives? Where, where the time just goes by like, like seconds and, and where after we talk about these things that are deep on our heart, there's a sense of peace and life filling us. I would think if you're a follower of Jesus, you long for that. We all long for it as human beings, whether we're followers of Jesus or not, with other people, but as a follower of Jesus. Now, those conversations, those types of uh, time-defying, life-giving conversations and interactions were common in Jesus' life. If you read through the gospel, he was having them all the time with people. And in Luke chapter 7, Luke records one of these conversations that involved actually two people at a dinner party. Now, one of, the, one of those two people was deeply engaged. One was disengaged. One was deeply moved. One was resistant. One walked out a different person. The other remained the same as when they came in. Luke Chapter 7, the story of Jesus at a dinner party with the Pharisees. Now, I've asked Barb Hill if she'll come and read that story for us. And then we're going to talk about what we learn about these deep conversations that Jesus has with people. Barb, do you have your mic? Oh, sorry, I didn't tell him to give her mic. We need a mic. This is what you call foreplanning, the lack of it. Do we have a mic that we, somebody's running? Sorry about that, Barb. Hey, you look good today. Good to have you up here. What are you going to do after church? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm stuck for stalling here. And this is all online, too. So everybody's going to see it. Yeah, yeah. So. No, they won't hear you. They won't hear you. Just talk among yourselves. Here we go. Let's see Amy. So Amy, thank you, Amy. Now, you just need to know this was all my fault. I never told anybody that, other than Barb that she was going to do this, so you can blame me. Our tech team is great, and they do great work. It's the pastor that's the problem. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, back to Luke. Luke 7, 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on him. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. 
So he forgave the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the greater debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, See this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet, wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, since I entered, has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What's this story about? If you had to say in two words what this story was about, what would you say? Let me help you with that. Let's go back through the story and look at just some of the verses in the story. A woman in that town, verse 37, who lived a sinful life. Verse 39. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Verse 42. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Verse 43, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. Verse 47, therefore I tell you her many sins have been forgiven, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Verse 48, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And verse 49, who is this who even forgives sins? First word about what this story is, is about forgiveness. About being released from the debt that you owe. For having the weight of the sin that you feel and you know is true about yourself to be removed from your life and no longer have to give account of it before God. It's about forgiveness. But it's not just about forgiveness. Second word, verse 42 and verse 43. Now, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, said Jesus. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves 
little. Jesus makes a direct correlation between the love a person has for him, and I would say for others, and the forgiveness that they have received. So love flows out of forgiveness. This story is about how we love Jesus deeper when we understand what he has done in us and for us. And it's shown in the lives of the two main characters of the story other than Jesus. The woman who has extravagant, radical love. We know from the Pharisee that she is a sinner, which is another name in this context for a prostitute. She gives herself for money to men. Even today, that's not a highly regarded profession. And yet she's the one that wanders, not, not wanders, that walks into the Pharisee's house knowing full well that what she is going to receive when she gets there. She is not going to be welcomed. She is going to be mocked. She is going to be put down. She's going to be attacked. Why would she walk into that environment, put herself in that situation? Does she need more self-condemnation in her life? And then, while she's there, to be weeping at the feet of Jesus, while they're having their conversation, here she is, and they lie down to have their meal, like kind of recline, and there she is, kind of out of the picture, but, but who, could not, who could miss her? And then she's pouring out tears, crying at his feet. When's the last time that you have ever witnessed somebody at the feet of somebody just weeping? And I'm telling you, you would feel uncomfortable. And yet, no sense of trying to protect her dignity. Just weeping and then sees the mess of the dirt on his feet and washes them with her hair and then, then takes perfume, which would have been highly, highly expensive, probably the only thing, the nicest thing that she had, and pours them on, her, on his feet, pouring out his love. And Jesus just receives that love. What motivated her to put herself in that situation and, and show such extravagant, albeit embarrassing, love to Jesus. The forgiveness. That Jesus looked at her as no other man looked at her and valued her and thought she was important and was willing to understand who she was and then give her value by saying, you are forgiven. No man had ever imparted that dignity, that value into her ever in her life. She was used, but she was never loved. And this triggered, knowing that Jesus knew everything about her, all that she was, all that she'd done, and still loves me, and it just let go floodgates and and all she could do was just pour out her love on him she had no she doesn't even speak in the story and yet nobody wonders how she felt about jesus it's obvious and jesus interprets it now simon who knew far more than the woman 
about God. And who hadn't lived a sinful life. Shows no love to Jesus. None whatsoever. He doesn't even do the the common courtesy of relieving Jesus from the dust of his day and welcoming him into his home. He invites him in, but he doesn't welcome him in. And then he doesn't give him some oil to refresh himself after the heat and the dust of the day. He doesn't even treat him as you would normally treat a guest in your house because he has no love for Jesus. And Jesus interprets all of this by saying this. He who has been forgiven little loves little, and he who has been given much, forgiven much, loves much. That interprets the whole story for us. What's going on, Simon, is in your heart, you don't think you need to be forgiven anything, so you have no love, no value, no sense of joy in me. You don't even like me. But this one who has lived a life of sin and desperately searching for dignity, has found me and was forgiven, and now love just pouring out of her. Because it's true, he who has been forgiven little loves little. If you don't think you need to be forgiven of anything, then you have no compassion or love or attraction to Jesus. But if you know the depth of your sin. And then you hear Jesus say, you are forgiven, go in peace. It just floods love out of your life. How? How could he treat me so good? How could he love me? How could he relieve me of my sin? How could he set me free? I deserve the condemnation that I have. And yet he's freed me. And it just pours love out. Now that has not changed. That has not changed today. Now, what has this loving, forgiving little, loving little, forgiving much, loving much, how does, what's that got to do with time-defying, life-giving interactions with God? What is the prerequisite to forgiveness? What do you think it is? Humility. Humility. Confession. Confession. That comes out of a humility of self, right? Like, I'm going to admit what is true of my life. I am going to stop justifying myself. I'm going to stop ignoring my sin. I'm going to stop minimizing my sin. I'm going to say to God or to another person what is true about me in light of the knowledge of the truth of God. I am going to say and admit what is true of me to God. The woman freely and openly confessed. She wasn't hiding who she was what she'd done. And in, 
in confession, in being honest and open and true about what was true about her in light of God, not about what was true about her, about what other people said about her, or what social convention said about her, but what the word and truth of God said about her, she admitted openly and freely. That was confession, which led to forgiveness, which led to this deep outpouring of love that welled up within her. But then Simon, who was knowledgeable of the truth, who had the word of God, probably had a lot of it memorized, did not see a need for forgiveness because there was no confession in his life. He didn't look into his life, into his heart, into his words. Even what he thought about that woman didn't trigger in him, there's something wrong with me that I would treat another human being with such disdain and disrespect and, and treat her in an undignified way. That didn't even trigger in his mind. He had no reason to believe he needed forgiveness, therefore saw no value in Jesus. Confession is the link between these time-defined, life-giving interactions with God. And the story about forgiveness and love. There is one thing that is true of all those who love Jesus deeply. They confess openly what is true about them. Because you cannot love Jesus deeply if you don't experience forgiveness, and you will never experience forgiveness if you don't confess. If you don't have the humility to say what is true of your life in light of God's truth. Those who confess little need little forgiveness and have little love, but those who are open and honest and confess fully what is true find full forgiveness and love much. A couple years ago, I was uh, really struggling with two particular sins in my life that were keeping a barrier between me and God and were causing um, conflict and discord in my home, in my marriage and with my kids. And uh, it took me a while to see it, and then when I saw it, I was frustrated, and I, I was discouraged, and it kind of, kind of just spiraled down because the reality was I'd come to the realization that after 30 years of, or more of following Jesus and 30 years of pastoring in the name of Jesus and 30 plus years of studying and, and being deeply in the word of God, after all of this devotion to Jesus, I was as bad then as I was when I first came to Christ. In fact, I would say I was further behind. I was worse in the area of these two sins. I mean, surely you're supposed to grow and, and, and change and overcome. And I was in this full realization that I was as bad now, in fact, worse now than I was 30 plus years ago when I first came to Jesus. I was spiraling. So I started to... I laugh because it took me so long to get to the point of confession. 
And I remember, like, I was struggling with it for weeks and months. And then finally, I had one of those time-defying, life-giving conversations where I just told Jesus everything that I just told you about in detail. And, and I was just like, I, I, I don't know if I can keep going on. And I was pouring out my heart and confessing everything. And then the whisper of the Holy Spirit said, it's not that you're worse now than you were then. It's just now you're aware of how deeply you are sinful. And you have always been this sinful. You just know it better now. You're more aware of the depths of the sin and how it comes out and why you treat people the way you do and what's going on in your heart. It's not that you're worse. It's just you're more aware. You're forgiven. Go in peace. And I came out of that conversation with God relieved. But his forgiveness for me had not just been that point in time where I confessed my sin. He had been forgiven me for 30 plus years, even when I didn't know how deeply sinful I was. And I began to see reactions I had, things that I did, decisions I made that were governed by these two sins. I didn't even know they were affecting those things back then. And yet his forgiveness was with me even when I didn't know it. And now when I expressed it and confessed it to him, he poured it all out on me. I was expecting condemnation. Yeah, you should be better. Yeah, you have been following me. Yeah, you have been preaching the word. Yeah, you should be better. You should be farther. That's what I was expecting. But instead I got, yeah, you're just as bad. You just now are realizing it. You're forgiven. Go in peace. It was that point that created in me a deeper love for Jesus than I've ever had. Because he who's forgiven much loves much. I think you know where this is going. In the evenings, I'm reading the story of David right now. And I'm always amazed. I just, a couple nights ago, I just went through the story of David and Bathsheba. You know, the story where David sees Bathsheba, lusts after her, has her, she gets pregnant, so then he kills her husband, Uriah to cover it all up. And, and the, the thought in my mind was, I think for the first time ever was, well, maybe not the first time, I don't know, but the thought in my mind was, how could David, who wrote so many psalms and led God with such passion and was a, a spiritual figure of the Old Testament, one of the greatest spiritual, how could he live with his sin what not affecting him? How did he go? Like, yeah, I get the cover-up part, but how did he live with it so much so that he, God had to bring Nathan the prophet to him, tell him a story about a guy killing some poor person's lamb, and David getting upset, and him going, you're the man. Why did it take Nathan to, to tell David, 
You are the man. You're in sin. And then David breaks, and then his heart pours out to God. He writes a Psalm 51 about it, and how he is broken deeply, and how he longs to be restored to God, and that triggers the restoration of God. How in that time did he live with that sin without getting to the point of brokenness? No confession is how he did it. No confession. He justified his sin. Well, uh, what would anybody do? I am the king, after all. I can have what I want. God has blessed me, and this is just another blessing. He justifies his actions, or he, he, uh, he minimizes them. Well, everybody's doing it. She didn't love him anyway. He didn't even love her enough to go be with her when I brought him home. It wasn't a big deal. I am the king, after all. Or we explain it away. Or we just ignore it. But we don't confess it. And the lack of confession hinders, here it is, hinders our relationship with God and, to be honest, with others. That when we are unwilling to be true and, or, or unwilling to accept and to acknowledge the truth about our actions and our thoughts and our attitudes and our behaviors and how they are broken, when we are unwilling to confess and acknowledge that, then there's a hindrance between us and God and us and other people. And because when we refuse to acknowledge the truth of our lives and confess it, then we are not receiving what? Forgiveness. Because we don't think we want it or need it. And so because we are not forgiven of the depth of our sin, we are not expressing or feeling or engaging in the love for Jesus and for God. But when we confess openly what is true of us and don't pull back and are honest with God and honest with those we need to be honest with and we say, this is who I am, then we hear, you are forgiven. Go in peace. And love pours out of us. And that, my friends, is what I am trying to say and what I experience is that it's the lack of confession is the reason why we are not experiencing those time-defying, life-giving interactions with God. We're too busy building a wall so we don't have to go there. Have to go what's true of us. A true confession where we take time to consider the word of God as we read it and ask, what is true of me in this story, God? Or when we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit or our conscience, which are often working together, instead of pushing it down and explaining it away and justifying, we take a time out and we talk to God and say, what is true of me? And if we don't understand it, we go to other people who are godly and say, this is what I'm struggling with. I'm wondering, is there sin in my life that I have to deal with? We take it seriously and we confess it. That then leads us to forgiveness because Jesus on the cross, his death 
paid for all of our sins, but just because they're paid for doesn't mean we experience the freedom from them until we first confess them. And then we experience the forgiveness, and then guess what we experience after that? His love. Because he who's forgiven little loves little, but he who's forgiven much loves much. Is this you? Until you come to a realization that because of your sin, you are separated from God, and you are undone, and you are destined for an eternity separated from God, and that there is nothing that you will ever be able to do to be able to reconcile yourself with God, and that only confession of who you really are and what's true about you in light of God will bring you into forgiveness and then salvation. So if you have never admitted or confessed your sin to God and believe that Jesus and his death fully pays for it and that if you choose to surrender your life to him, you'll be fully forgiven. If you've never taken that step that starts with confession, then you need to take that step. Because you will never experience a love for Jesus until first you're willing to go there with the truth about your sin. Now, we, many of us here have made that choice. We have, yes, I've experienced that. Yes, I've confessed I was a sinner to God and I called on him and, and I'm saved. But our lives are so bland in our relationship with God because we think it's a one-time thing, this confession thing. Oh, I confessed my sins when I was in grade one and I prayed with my mom at the side of the bed and now I'm free and, and God, Jesus has forgiven all my sins. I keep hearing you say that. And so I don't have to worry about it. But confession is a regular daily thing because I regularly grievously sin against God often, sometimes daily. And it's not, oh, well, that's covered at the cross. It's go back, Ed, and then be true to yourself and to me and anybody else that you've sinned against and, and deal and face it and then bring it to me and experience my fresh forgiveness that's based on the cross, and then your love will grow for me. As Christians, the forgiven people of God, we should be the best at confession because we know where it leads. We know that we can bring it all to him and he will fully forgive us and that it will grow us as our love deepens for him. We know that. And it's not because we don't sin. It's because he is faithful to us even when we do sin. But I find we neglect confession. When's the last time you spent some time and just kind of thought about your sin? Not beating, I'm not talking about beating ourselves up about it, but just being honest about the way you talk to your parent or the way you talk to your children or the way you talk to your boss or the way you talk to your employees or the way you talk to, about people or the reason you chose not to give the money or the reason you chose to give it. Or the way you blew off your spouse, the way you blew off your kid. When was the last time you, you kind of stopped and, and was honest with God about who you really are? Um, I think that's why we don't experience those time-defying, 
uh, soul life-giving interactions with God because we don't start at the starting point. Confession. And by the way, because sin separates us from other people, I mean, when you gossip about somebody and they find out about it, do you embrace when you see one another? When, when somebody go, drives by you on the 404 and gives you the finger, does that prompt blessing for them as you're driving down? When there is sin between you and your spouse or you and your parents or you and your kids, does, does that make for a calm, love-filled home? Well, do you think when you sin against God, that nothing changes in your relationship. It is a barrier. You have moved. God hasn't. You have moved. And so when we sin against other people or we sin against God, the relationship moves. There's a distance. There's a separation. And until we confess and seek forgiveness, the relationship and the love never regains its strength. That may explain a lot of your relationships. confession. I think it's time. It's time we get better at this thing called confession. And I don't believe it's because you don't believe anything I've just said. And I don't believe it's because you don't really care about Jesus. I think it's because it's hard and it takes time and you don't have space in your life for it. But if you want the love and the joy between you and Jesus, it starts right there. Honest confession. Would you bow your head, please? So um, what are you going to do about this need for confession? It's great if you've listened. It's great even better if you agreed, yeah, that's true. I, I think when I confess, it'll lead to forgiveness and a deeper love. It's great if you think that. But now the question is, what will you do about it? How will you implement a time, just to be honest with God, about your thoughts, about your actions, about how you treat people, your behaviors, your motives? Where in your life will you place confession? That's the starting point to forgiveness. And he who is forgiven little, in other words, they don't think they need it, loves little. But he or she who is forgiven much, loves much. The doorway into these time-defying, life-giving interactions with God is confession. But it's up to you to decide whether you'll take that step. Jesus, teach us to walk with you in humility. Grant us grace as we struggle and stumble with confession. But help us to never give up 
And may this be the day that is the lowest level and experience of confession in our lives. Because from this day on, confession becomes a normal, honest, vulnerable part of our lives that will result, according to your word, in a deeper love for you.